Boyd Lewis, and uh, he wrote a piece after what he saw uh, in Europe at World War II. He wrote a piece entitled Memorial Day Remembrance, and I read it myself, and I decided that I would share it with you again this morning. Memorial Day Remembrance by news correspondent Boyd Lewis. Lord, keep my memory green. So spoke the haunted man in Charles Dickens' story of that same name many long years ago. So might the multitudes who have sacrificed their lives for us in many good causes cry out to us today, haunted perhaps that the memory of their service as perpetrated in the nation's Memorial Day needs steps to recover its original meaning. That was true when he wrote that after World War II. How much more is it true today? Haunted by the fear that future generations will forget, not know, the sacrifices of our lives in order to give them liberty in their lives. Has Memorial Day just become an extra holiday from work or school? Have we made it more a time to hit the shopping malls or go to the beach or the golf course? Once this was not so. I remember those days, especially those sweet dim days between the two great wars, which now seem so blissfully uncomplicated. First, the European War that began in 1914 and ended in 1917, and the Second World War, which began in 1939, and which ended by treaty signed before my very eyes in France in 1945. In that interval of less troubled times, the nation honored its dead on the 30th of May, and not on a day conveniently tacked onto the nearest two-day weekend to create a triple holiday. On that May 30th, which we then called Decoration Day, Americans marched in solemn procession in every town and hamlet to lay flowers upon the many graves in their cemeteries, marked by metallic standards showing that they held the honored remains of fellow men we knew as doughboys or gobs or flyboys. I remember, oh yes, I remember well. I marched many such miles to the grave sites at the head of the Mongoose Patrol, Troop Number 1, Boy Scouts of America, Foxborough, Massachusetts. We were one unit of a parade that featured the living veterans of the wars then remembered. Men in the faded blue of the northern forces in the Civil War of the previous century were in automobiles and wagons. They waved feeble hands to the throngs on the sidewalk. Veterans of other wars had marching units, the blue and khaki of the Spanish-American War, along with the drab of World War II. They stepped along smartly from memory of their training, and we Boy Scouts sought to emulate them. We did not know it at the time, but far to the south, similar processions were marching to the cemeteries where the veterans of the Confederacy were interred, honoring those who fell in their lost cause. Along a wide band of the central states, soldiers of northern blue and southern gray were honored on Memorial Day, regardless of time of national healing after a divisive conflict. 
Full many a cause for honored remembrance has been added since those days of my boyhood. Full many a grave filled. Full many a battle won and precious rights preserved. The the great second world war is, astonishingly for some of us, half a century back. But great sacrifices have been made during the prolonged Cold War, which followed in the roster of those deserving honor, and the remembrance grows longer with each passing day. What does Memorial Day mean to you? A little girl was asked. That's the day the pools open, she replied. How fortunate we are that the little girl may go to her pool. How fortunate we are to be a nation of peace. How very blessed we are that veterans died to make this possible. Let us remember. Let us put the memorial back in Memorial Day. The tranquility we enjoy was purchased dearly. May we never forget. Boyd Lewis, World War II correspondent. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 21. Gospel of Luke chapter number 21 in your Bibles this morning. Couldn't help but think of Daniel praying as men sang that last song. He was free to pray regardless of what his king had pronounced. And it was his freedom to pray that landed him in the lion's den. We have lived a turbulent year here in America, as has the rest of the world. News reports can cause much concern, but I've got good news. You know what the good news is? The good news is there's a dark day coming. A dark day coming. How can a dark day coming be good news? But I say yes. God is unfolding an amazing plan with a glorious ending. And we are getting closer and closer to the unfolding of the last stage of that plan, which will lead us up to the glorious ending of life as we know it on planet Earth and the glorious beginning of life in a, in a perfect kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ. Well, we've been studying the, the Gospel of Luke, and for the last few weeks, we have been focusing on the Olivet Discourse, the sermon that Jesus Christ preached on the end of the day on Tuesday, just a few days before His crucifixion. Now, the part of the sermon that we're focusing on today is a part of the sermon that really requires us to understand some, uh, some basic information about prophecy. And so on the, on the flip side of your little worksheet, your little sermon worksheet this morning, there are a couple of graphs. The first one is coming up on the screen now. 
These are two graphs that illustrate the most amazing vision. It's the vision of Daniel's 77s. It's translated in our Bible as the seven, 70 weeks, but the word week does not mean a week as a week of days. It could be a week of weeks. It could be a week of months. It could be a week of years. It simply means a period of seven. And so Daniel's vision was a vision of 70 sevens. Now, looking back, because of the information given in that vision and how history unfolded, we know the sevens were periods of seven years. So, 77-year periods was 490 years. And on the chart at the top, we have the, the laying out of the prophecy as Daniel received the vision and recorded it. It all And this is the prophecy in the Old Testament about timing. Everyone wants to know timing. The apostles asked Jesus on that Tuesday afternoon, when is that going to happen? When are you coming back? When is the world going to end? The question of timing was the timing was the question on their minds. Well, there is one prophecy in the Old Testament that deals with timing. And that's Daniel's vision of 77s or 490 years. You can study that. I, that's not our purpose today, but there was a fixed beginning point for the 490 years to begin. And after 69 seven-year periods, the Messiah would be cut off, leaving one seven-year period yet to come at the crucifixion of Christ. That seven-year period, that one week or one period of seven years, would end in the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish His kingdom. That's the timing as given in the vision. Jesus should have returned seven years after the crucifixion of Christ. And those seven years would have been the tribulation period, and Jesus would have returned. Unbeknownst to the Old Testament preachers, there was was a, a, a mystery age that was a mystery in the Bible is something that has not been told before. It's a mystery because it's unrevealed in the past, and it is now being revealed as a mystery. And the Old Testament preachers did not receive from God information about an interlude of time that is not identifiable for its length. And that unidentified period of time would separate the 69th from the 70th week. So, on the next chart, the one you have on your bottom of your, your little sermon worksheet, what happened was... When Jesus Christ died, Israel rejected his kingdom. God put the pause button on Daniel's prophecy, his vision of 70 weeks. And we have been living in an undisclosed period of time that we don't know how long it's going to be. It could end today or tomorrow or next week. We don't know when it's going to end. But when it ends, that last seven-year period of time will occur And then Jesus will come back in his second coming to establish his kingdom. Our focus this morning 
is that seven-year period of time. The portion of the Olivet Discourse that Jesus Christ focused on that period of time. Now, Jesus Christ was asked questions, and he answered questions in the Olivet Discourse. And we have already looked at a couple of the sections of the Olivet Discourse. He first dealt with his followers and what they would experience immediately after his death and forward until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We saw that a couple of messages back, and the key word was persecution. And persecution did begin right after Jesus was crucified. We read about it throughout the book of Acts, and it has continued for 2,000 years. And it will continue until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We're told that in that portion of the Olivet Discourse in verses 12 to 19. Then the second part of the Olivet Discourse that we've already looked at was what was going to happen to the Jewish unbelievers alive at Jesus Christ's death. What was going to happen to the nation of Israel in their lifetime? And Jesus Christ said, Jerusalem is coming down. Not one stone will be left upon another. The Romans sacked Jerusalem and then they scattered the Jewish people to the four corners of the earth. Worldwide scattering of the Jewish people. And they suffered as a scattered nation throughout history from that time on. And then the third, and what we're going to look at this morning, the third part of the Olivet Discourse focused on the question, when are you coming back and what will be the sign of the end of the world? And so Jesus Christ spent some time in the Olivet Discourse talking about the end of the world, talking about that seven-year period of time that would end with Him returning to earth. And so this, this morning we want to focus on this, um, this tribulation period, this time of Jacob's trouble the Old Testament calls calls it. Now, there's, that's, that's an important contextual understanding of the timing of prophecy to be able to appreciate what Jesus Christ says at this juncture in his Olivet Discourse. There's a second thing. We mentioned it last message. The second thing that's important to understand, and that has to do, that has to do with the mountaintop or the mountain peaks of prophecy. And so we talked last week about how that uh, next slide, please. Here we go. That Jesus Christ is looking straightforward, linear, as he answers all these different questions. He's looking straight ahead out into the future, and he begins to talk about what's going to happen with his followers, what's going to happen with the nation of Israel, and what's going to happen that will result in my coming back to earth and the world ending. And he is answering all of these questions in a linear fashion, looking forward. But what you don't know in a linear fashion looking forward is you don't see between the mountain peaks. So this next slide reminds us that if you go to the side view, this mountain peak that looked like it was right up against this mountain peak on the linear frontal view, when you step to the side, you realize that there's a lot of stuff in between those. And that's the way prophecy is often given. God reveals big events looking forward. 
But he doesn't reveal all of the valleys of time between those peaks. So this next slide reminds us that Jesus talked about Jerusalem being destroyed. He talked about Israel being scattered and becoming captives to all nations. He talked about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled, this seven-year tribulation period, his second coming in the end of the world. But what he didn't make clear is that there was a lot of stuff in between answering that question and answering these questions. And that in between is the last 2,000 years of world history since Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. And we're still in that valley looking forward Wondering when, when will the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled and the tribulation period begin, which will end in the second coming and the end of the world? Well, what's the conditions? What's, what will it be like during that time? Well, Jesus answered that question. He told what it was going to be like during that seven-year period that will culminate in his second coming. That's what we're looking at this morning. There are five parts of this message And the first part has to do with general characteristics. We're in Luke chapter 21 in our Bibles. If you have one of the few Bibles we have around the building for our guests, you're on page 624, page 624. Luke chapter 21, he has uh, been answering questions that were asked in verse 7. He began to answer them in verse number 8. And he begins by answering with some general characteristics, some general characteristics of the time ahead. Verse number eight, and he said, take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not, therefore, after them. The first general characteristic of the time in front of Jesus Christ is that will go all the way through to the time of his second coming. The first general characteristic of the future is deception. Deception. There'll be a lot of people that come and say, hey, I'm Christ, I've come back. The end is near. Jesus said he was coming back, I'm, I'm here. Well, that has that began to happen right after Jesus Christ's death. Josephus, the trustworthy historian of Jesus' day, wrote his Antiquities. And in the Antiquities, he talked about all of the people that began to crop up in the first century, claiming they were Jesus Christ back. Josephus said that during the time that Felix was governor of Israel, and we read about Felix in the book of Acts. Josephus said that during the time that Felix was governor in Israel, there were so many people claiming to be Christ Back for his second coming, and I quote, the Romans, that they were, those, those individuals were apprehended and killed every day by the Romans. There were so many deceivers immediately during that first century following the death of Christ and throughout history. It's It's amazing how many people in the last 2,000 years beginning with the death of Christ, how many people have come forward and said, I'm back, I'm back, follow me. And that has happened throughout the last 2,000 years. This is a general characteristic. Jesus said, hey, there's going to be many that will come, but don't 
Don't be deceived by them. And then there was a second general characteristic. Verse number nine. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass. But the end is not by and by. Did you notice that? But the end is not by and by. These are general characteristics for the whole future in front of us. But it's not a sign that the end is upon us. The second general characteristic is destruction. Mankind has experienced destruction from wars throughout human history. That's not a sign that the end is near. But notice verse number 10. Verse number 10. Then said he unto them. Do you see that transition? Then said he unto them. And Jesus moves from general characteristics that will always be true to specific characteristics, the concentration of which will only be true in the seven years that lead up to his second coming. The transition in language is is very clear, but when ye shall hear, and then he lists a number of characteristics, six of them that are listed on your little worksheet there. Six characteristics. And in the middle of this, this list of six characteristics, he breaks. There's a break, and I mentioned that in your, on your handout, and, and we, that was the passage we looked at last week. He's gone around, he's gone along giving the general characteristics, and then he stops in verse number 12 and says, but before these, before all these, they shall lay their hands on you. And that goes down through verse 24, where he says, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So that big parentheses we looked at last message, this is the persecution that Christ's followers were experiencing throughout time until the end of the tribulation period. So we're going to we're, we're going to we're going to jump over those because we've already looked at that because it's a parenthesis. If you'll notice in verse number 10, look at or verse number 11, verse number 11 ends and great signs shall there be from heaven. Now jump past the parentheses to verse 25 and there shall be signs in the sun, moon and stars. Verse number 11, great signs from heaven, verse 25, signs in the sun, moon, and stars. That's the connection. Everything in between is the parentheses of persecution of Christ's followers. Now, let's back up and let's notice the specific characteristics of the tribulation period. Verse number 10, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be a concentration of world wars. Verse 11, great earthquakes in divers places and famines and pestilences, widespread sickness, disease and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. Space tragedies, signs in the heavens. Planets, asteroids, things happening in space, great signs from heaven. Verse 25, signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, great space 
tragedies. Verse 26 at the end of the verse, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. God is going to grab a hold of the planets. He's going to grab a hold of outer space and he's going to shake it like a rag doll. These are things that have never happened before. Concentrated together in a seven year period and most of them in the Last half of that seven year period, the three and a half years of great tribulation. And then look at verse 25 at the end of verse number 25. The Bible says. The sea and the waves roaring. The sea. Think of a tsunami, but think of a hundred tsunamis. Think of a thousand tsunamis all happening one right after the other. Powers of the heavens are shaken. Sea and waves roaring. These are Jesus Christ's description. Six specific characteristics of the tribulation period. This language describes such tragedies that have an unprecedented impact on humanity. We've never seen anything like what Jesus described any time in the last 2,000 years of history. The concentration of tragedies, the language... Unprecedented. Now, I want you to see the impact. The impact on humanity. Verse number 25, at the end of the verse, the Bible says, Upon the earth, distress of nations. Distress of nations. All over the world, people will be in distress. The nations, worldwide, every part of the world, nations will be in distress. What they see happening has never happened in humanity before. What they see when they look up at the skies, that's never happened before. What is happening on the earth has never happened before. And there will be great distress. Verse number 25 also says, Upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. No one has any answers. Everyone's got questions. Nobody has answers. They're totally perplexed by what they're observing. They can't explain it. Scientists can't explain it. Politicians can't explain it. Nobody can explain it. They're totally perplexed. They don't know what to do. They have no answers to their questions. They are in great distress because of the perplexity that pervades the entire world. And verse number 26 says, men's hearts failing them for fear. Men's hearts failing them for fear. Scared to death. Heart attacks. Not able to live. Not able to think. Perplexity. Fear. Distress. That's the impact. That's what people are going to live through. In the tribulation period. That's the impact of all of the global things that are happening in the tribulation period that impacts humanity by leaving them in fear and perplexity and great distress. The experience of the concentration of all these disasters, mainly during that last three and a half years, will leave mankind in unprecedented Fear, distress, and perplexity. You know, I would expect 
that when Jesus Christ said this to the apostles, they're, they're sitting there on the top of the Mount of Olives. They're looking across the Kidron Valley. They're looking at that beautiful temple. This uh, last screen, the um, change here. They're looking at that beautiful temple there across the Kidron Valley, the amazing temple that Herod had renovated and built. And, 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 and life is normal and everything is, uh, uh, is calm and and. and I would have expected the apostles to say, Jesus Christ, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Interplanetary things occurring and God shaking the universe and, and the, 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 the waves roaring over the land. And, and what are you talking about, Jesus? But they didn't ask any questions about it. You know why they didn't ask any questions about it? I've got a hunch that the reason the apostles didn't ask any questions about it is because they were Bible students. They had grown up learning the Old Testament, their Bible. They had studied the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Joel. And when Jesus Christ said was exactly what the preachers of the Old Testament had said. And what Jesus said was a little snippet of what the preachers of the Old Testament had said. And they knew these things were going to come. They just didn't know the timing. They knew this was going to happen to the earth. They just didn't know the timing of when it was going to happen to the earth. They weren't shocked by what Jesus Christ said. And we know that from the prior revelation of God throughout the Old Testament. They had read and studied these passages during their lives. I want you to turn back to the Old Testament. I want you to notice what the Old Testament preacher said, that these apostles had grown up being taught in their synagogues on Saturdays. Things that their families, had, their dads had taught them as their dads taught them. The prophecies of the Old Testament preachers. And I want you to fix your eyes upon what, what was common knowledge to these apostles. Isaiah chapter 13, verse number 6. Isaiah 13, verse number 6. I put all of these references on the little worksheet so that, that uh, you may find yourself wanting to read and reread these and understand the common knowledge of the apostles when they heard Jesus preach the Olivet Discourse. Isaiah 13, verse number 6. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Now you understand that the phrase, day of the Lord, is an eschatological phrase which means the end judgment. It's the day that God comes and Judges a world of rejectors. And that phrase is used throughout the Bible. How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. I want you to pick up the phraseology of the Old Testament preachers that Jesus Christ used as he spoke to the apostles on the Olivet Dis at the on the Mount of Olives. Verse number 8. 
They shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth. The moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man of the, uh, than the golden wedge of, of Ophir. Therefore, I shall, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Did you catch, did, did, did that last verse grab you? I'm going to shake the heavens. I'm going to cause the earth to be removed out of her place. In the day of his fierce anger. The apostles knew that. They had studied that. They knew their Bibles. They were Bible students. And when Jesus Christ said what he said, that was not a shock to them. It was just reminding them of what their preachers had said. Turn over a few pages to Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, verse number 1. Isaiah 24 and verse number 1. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Oh, he goes, just, uh, just powerful language. Verse number three, the land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord has spoken his word. Verse number five, the earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws and changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Why is God going to do this to his earth? Because the people on earth have transgressed his eternal moral law. They have changed the ordinances of what God laid down in creation. We're living in a day where we're seeing that happen in warped speed. Who five years ago we would have never dreamt that America would be in the condition it's in today. I got an email, uh, a text message just a couple of days ago, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, from a, from a Fairfax County school uh, employee, I believe a teacher, and asked, said, please, please pray for the school teachers in Fairfax County. Said, I just attended mandatory training in which we were told that we will help students transition to the gender of their choice without any parental permission, 
knowledge. Said we will use the names that the student wants to be called in the elementary school, the middle school and the high school. And we will use the pronouns that the student wants to be called. We will help them as a school. However, when you speak to their parents, you will only use their legal name. How can we pull the, uh, pull the wool over the parents' eyes? How can we keep the parents from knowing what their kids are doing? How can we further fraction families? We will help these students. And this Fairfax County Public School employee said, please pray. Last week it was on the news that a Loudoun County Public School teacher has been put on leave because he said he wasn't going to play their gender games. And he's facing possibly being fired from Loudoun County Public Schools. Who would have dreamt that our society at warp speed would defy the eternal laws of God? Would turn his ordinances upside down. That's why he's going to destroy the world. His Old Testament preacher Isaiah said it very clear and plain. That's why God is going to finally step in and destroy his world. Because we have transgressed his laws. Oh. And when that happens, verse 6 says, Therefore hath the curse... Devoured the earth. Verse ends and few men left. Verse number eight. The mirth of tabrets ceaseth. No more music in the tribulation period. The noise of them that rejoice endeth. No more laughter in the tribulation period. The joy of the harp ceaseth. No more soothing music in the tribulation period. They shall... Not drink wine with a song. Strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. There is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. There's a dark day coming. Come down to verse 23, the last verse of the chapter. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. Can you imagine when God blackens the sun and people live in 24 hours of pitch darkness and there's no sun and therefore no reflection of light off the moon and people are existing in 24-hour darkness and panic and perplexity. And fear consumes the inhabitants of the earth. I'll not read the Joel passage. I'll even skip for time to Zephaniah, but go to Haggai. And let me read the two verses in Haggai. These are well-known teachings of the Old Testament that all of the apostles had learned when they were attending synagogue and listening to dad and mom talk about the scriptures, what the word says. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, I will shake the heavens. I want to emphasize that. 
I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. That's everything. That's the atmosphere around. That's outer space. That's the earth, the dry land. That's the the seas, the oceans. God's going to reach down and shake it. Have you ever have you ever studied a tsunami? Have you ever watched video clips of the awesome power of one wave of tsunami because the earth shook a little bit under the ocean and caused the utter devastation of a tsunami? Can you imagine when God shakes the heavens and shakes the earth and shakes the oceans? Can you contemplate the universal disaster? This is the ecologist's nightmare. This is Greenpeace's worst day. This is God utterly destroying everything that humanity has, has for all of the history of humanity, we're used to the sun coming up and the sun going down. We have winter, then we have spring, then we have summer, then we have fall. And God's ordinances just continue to operate. And God says, enough! And He shakes it all! And nothing's the same again! And the sun is blackened. And people are scared to death. And their hearts begin to fail them. Because nobody can explain what's happening in our world today. Horrible, horrible time. Such messages in the Old Testament leave us in awe at what the future holds. And the apostles knew these passages. They had studied these passages. And Jesus was merely reminding them of what they already knew was someday going to happen. And Jesus was telling them that this it's what's going to happen that will culminate in His second coming. Because the next verse in Luke 21 is, Then they'll see the Son of Man coming in great power and great glory. And we'll look at that next week, Lord willing, or the next message. I want you to see the fourth part, though. The fourth part, let's see, was the prior revelation. Look at the last part of the message. Future revelation from the New Testament. Let's end over in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter number 6. We've seen Jesus Christ. We're studying Jesus Christ's answer to these questions. We have just taken a look back into the Old Testament to see that the prior revelation of the Old Testament about these same things. I want you to look at one passage in the future revelation of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 6, verse number 12. And behold... And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. By the way, the book of Revelation is an amazing book. If you've never read it and studied it, it's the only book of the Bible that starts out by saying, Blessed is he that readeth and understandeth. If you never studied the book of Revelation, I would encourage you to study the book of Revelation. If you want help, email me and I'll send you an outline and schematic, a flow of, of what the book of Revelation is all about and, and make it easier to read through the, the, uh, the book Verse number 12, I beheld the opening of the sixth seal. The sixth seal was seven trumpets. I'm sorry, the, um, the seventh, the, the, uh, the uh, seventh seal was seven trumpets, which included the seven vials. 
one ahead. Verse number 12, I saw the sixth seal open, and notice what happens. Lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth. The stars of heaven came and hit the earth. God shakes the heavens, and things move out of their orbit and collide with the earth. Even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. They would have seen that. They were familiar with that, a fig tree with figs. And then a storm comes through and shakes the fig tree. And it throws some of its figs to the ground. That's what's going to happen during the tribulation period when God shakes the earth. And planets collide with earth. Verse 14, the heaven Departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. Can you imagine a scroll when it is rolled together? We don't use scrolls today. That was what they used then. They would take a parchment or an animal skin and, and they, would, they would write their document and then they would roll it up. Sometimes they would roll it from both sides and they would unroll it to read it. And... Revelation tells us that God is going to roll the heaven up as a scroll. He's going to roll it up as a scroll. And it's going to be gone. Gone. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Cataclysmic. Geological events causing the earth to shift on its axis and be moved out of its place. Causing tsunamis to overflow the land. Causing planets to hit the earth. I cannot even begin to imagine what it's going to be like to be on the earth at the in the tribulation period. And to experience the distress and the fear and the perplexity of the world in the blackness of existence on planet earth. Verse 15 says, The kings of the earth and great men and rich men and chief captains and mighty men and every bondman and every free man, everybody, rich people, poor people, kings, factory workers, it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't matter whether you're healthy or sick. It doesn't matter what your status in life was. Everybody will hide themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. The desire to die. Relieve us of this horror. Snuff out our lives. Mountain, fall on us and kill us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? The, cat, the catastrophic impact on world ecology that wraps the world in perplexity and distress and fear. 
trying to think through and imagine what it would be like to experience that. Impacted a Russian-born intellectual in the early 1900s, actually born in 1895 in Russia, died in America at age 84 in 1979. He was a man that wrote such books as Worlds in Collision and Ages in Chaos. It is said that his book, Worlds in Collision, complete with underlinings and notes, were found at Dr. Albert Einstein's bedside, on his bedside table when, he, when Einstein died. And Einstein had been reading the, the uh, writings of this individual. The two were apparently friends. The Russian-born Dr. Velikovsky. He was a bit eccentric. His theories were viewed as being fanciful. However, it's interesting to read his description of what could happen to the earth if a foreign asteroid or planet came close enough to the earth to cause the earth to shift slightly on its axis. Now, that's very mild in comparison to what we have just read of God shaking violently the earth and the heavens and rolling up the heavens like a scroll and blackening the sun and the moon and, and, and planetary bodies colliding with the earth. All Velikovsky said was if, if a heavenly body passed close enough to the earth to cause the earth to shift slightly on its axis, he described what would happen ecologically. And I quote, At that moment, an earthquake would make the earth shudder. Air and water would continue to move through inertia. Hurricanes would sweep the earth. The seas would rush over continents, carrying gravel and sand and marine animals, casting them on the land. Heat would be developed. Rocks would melt. Volcanoes would erupt. Lava would flow from fissures in the, up, in the ruptured ground, covering vast land areas. Mountains would spring up from the plains and would travel and climb on the shoulders of other mountains, causing faults and rifts. Lakes would be tilted and emptied. Rivers would change their beds. Large land areas with all their inhabitants would slip under the sea. Forests would burn and hurricanes and wild seas would wrest them from the ground from which they had they grew and, and piled them branch and root in huge heaps. Seas would turn into deserts, their waters flowing wildly. It was from one of his books that he wrote, describing as an intellectual, as a scientist, what would happen if the earth just shifted slightly because of an interplanetary object coming close enough to the earth to cause it to shift. Causing it to shift and the tectonic pl plates uh, uh, moving over top of each other and, and, and uh, oceans moving under land and land moving over oceans and the whole world broken irredeemably. And mankind in great distress. And yet his words that he described matched perfectly what Jesus said. And what Jesus said matched perfectly what the Old Testament preachers said. And matches perfectly to what John 
70 years down into, or 60 years down into the future, will say from the Isle of Patmos when he records from God the final book of the New Testament. There is a coming tribulation period. That's Jesus' message to his apostles. It's going to be everything your Old Testament preachers told you it was going to be. And our text says that it happens right before Jesus Christ comes back. The second time. The powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. You know, we have experienced in the last year something that pales in comparison to what we've read in God's words today. Our whole world has been put into turmoil because of a virus. Something as small and insignificant as COVID with its minimal impact, its minimal sicknesses, its minimal deaths, when you compare it to what Jesus and the Old Testament and the New Testament describes is going to happen over the whole world. And with the minimal little bit of inconvenience of COVID, our world changed. Perplexity, distress, and fear captivated the hearts of people all over the world. And COVID doesn't even hold a candle to what Jesus, the Old Testament, and John from the Isle of Patmos described is going to happen one day to the entire world because we transgressed His laws. We overturned His ordinances. And He said, enough is enough. And He shakes His creation bringing devastation to all of the world. Difficult to imagine how bad the tribulation period is going to be. Jesus said, it's coming. It's coming. And when it comes, I'll come back and create a new heavens and a new earth out of the chaos and the turmoil that is left at the end of my judgment. You know, such a catastrophe, a, a catastrophic future implores us to get saved. Amen? Boy, if you're not saved, if you're going to face the great tribulation at the end, that horror of God's judgment, we need to get saved if we're not saved. You've never been born again. You need to get saved today. Because this world's got a dark day coming. And it's going to come. We just don't know the hour and the day that it's going to come. Such catastrophic future implores us to reach out to others with the gospel. Do you have any gospel tracks in your pocket right now? Do you have anything to share with the waiter or waitress in the restaurant this afternoon? Are you ready? Are you prepared to share the gospel with somebody today? Or are you empty handed? Not a track in sight. Nothing to give to an unsaved person. Nothing to be able to do to help someone escape that catastrophic future. It implores us to be ready and active in reaching out to others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It implores us to send missionaries all over the world to preach the gospel to every creature in every nation. The catastrophic future implores us to action. You know what the sad reality is? 
The sad reality is that so many people on earth today will ignore all of God's warnings. They'll never bother to read the Old Testament. They won't even know that thousands of years ago all of this was written down in black and white to read and study and know what's coming. So many will totally ignore God's warnings, totally ignore God's word. They'll never be interested enough to even understand what Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse. They'll say, oh, the book of Revelation, I can't understand it. It's, it's too bizarre. It's just... And people will ignore God's warnings given throughout the centuries. They will live without any serious contemplation of God during this age of Gentile evangelism or the times of the Gentiles. And many of them will then suffer through the tribulation period. And even though they'll see massive revivals, 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the, the, the witnesses, the angel that flies through the sky with the gospel, even though there's a great evangelism in this tribulation period, they'll ignore all of that, according to Second Thessalonians. And they'll defy God. They'll beg the mountains to kill them. Because they can't stand the judgment of God whom they have rejected in their lives. But the good news is that God is still at work today, now. The good news is that God is preparing an exciting future. Oh, it's got, it's got a, some blackness, some darkness to it because of God's judgment on the world. But it's a grand and glorious future, and we'll see that in the next message as Jesus Christ comes back to earth in His second coming. And you can be a part of all that God is doing. No alarm, no fear, no dread, no perplexity, no distress. Perfect peace in Him can dominate your life today in spite of the dark day that the Bible tells us is coming upon the earth. You could be a part of God's peace. Because Jesus Christ died for you to save you from sin, to transform your life, to make you into a person that does keep his law and does respect his ordinances. And you can have God's peace in your life. When the world falls apart around you, you can have God's peace in your life. Not be distressed, not be fearful, knowing that God has this thing. All together. Oh, dear friend, the story of the tribulation period is a hard, dark story. But for those who are saved, we can have peace in the darkest night. Because our God brings us peace and joy. Are you saved? If you're not saved, would you meet with me after this service? Would you meet with Pastor Ryan, Chris, my wife, some of the others here? Would you meet with us and allow us to pray with you about the salvation of your soul? That you can have the peace of God in your heart regardless of what happens around you in the world. Because it's coming. It's coming. It might even start today.